We're going to continue in the Sermon on the Mount, looking today at the fourth beatitude in verse 6. But uh, we'll begin, I'll read from verse 1 through verse 6. So if you'd please follow along with me, Matthew chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The other day, I was listening to the pop Christmas playlist on Amazon Prime Music, and I was uh, inadvertently singing along, just kind of subconsciously, um, uh, and I was singing along to, as it turns out, Kelly Clarkson's Grown Up Christmas List, and I stopped um, both to preserve my own dignity and also uh, to listen to what I was singing. And, uh, you know, this song is very popular, and she's uh, is a, a woman who, as a girl, would go to Santa with her Christmas list. And now that she's grown, she still has a Christmas list, but it looks a little different. And the whole song is about what she would like now that she is an adult. And here's her Christmas list. No more lives torn apart, that wars would never start, and time would heal all hearts, and everyone would have a friend, and right would always win, and love would never end. And I thought, you know, I hear this type of thing a lot, not just from outside the church, but even from within the church. This is not a bad list. People in a broken world are exhausted with the brokenness. They're tired of the tyranny of whatever war is being fought or whatever heartbreak is happening in their lives or in the lives of those they love. And they're scared of what's coming next because they know that the track record that we have as a human race is not splendid. And it dawned on me that this song is so popular not just because Kelly Clarkson sings it or because it's catchy, but because people are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. They want things to be right in the world. They want justice to take the day they're hardwired for it. But the thing is, no matter how much we may know that these are good things, we don't know how to pull this off. And so the best the world can do is perhaps to bring it to Santa. Many people strive for these things in one way or another, but that's where we go wrong. It's, it's not that these desires are bad, they're good. It's good to want no more wars or for broken hearts to be mended and friendships to flourish. These are good things. Where things go wrong is when we hunger and thirst for the right things, even for righteousness, and we go about it in the wrong way. Well, we simply can't do it. It's not in our nature. It's not in our ability. There's only one who can satisfy those desires, and he's the one who's preaching the Sermon on the Mount and so as we look here at what Jesus is talking about in the fourth beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, let's begin by looking at this idea of hungering and thirsting, what I'm going to call craving. Craving. When Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, he was talking to people, the Jewish people, who knew what it was 
to be under the oppressive thumb of Rome for over a hundred years, or for almost a hundred years. And before that, as a people, under the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the, the Medo-Persians and then the Greeks, they were a people who had been dominated for half a millennia. And they were tired. They were broken. And they knew what it was to hunger and thirst physically. See, even today, the poorest among us can go somewhere to find food. Generally speaking, that happens. Well, not as much back then. Many of them were poor, and finding food was a day-by-day battle. And if you were on a journey, unless you brought water with you in some kind of a water skin, uh, or if you came upon a well, good, even just going between towns. But if you didn't have these things, you were stuck. Couldn't just go and turn on the nearest tap. And Jesus was talking to these people who knew what it was to be hungry and thirsty. And if you recall in John 6, Jesus fed thousands of people with some loaves and fishes, and they really liked what they tasted, and they wanted more. They thought, here's a man who can give us food. And so they followed him because they wanted more. They were hungry. And in an effort to fill their stomachs, they ended up missing the point of why Jesus came entirely. And in this beatitude, Jesus does something very biblical. That shouldn't surprise you. Uh, he uses the terms hungry and thirsty as word pictures. See, he's not talking about physical hunger or thirst here. He is talking about spiritual hunger and thirst, spiritual craving, spiritual desire. And this is something that has been going on in the Bible for a very long time. If you recall the 42nd Psalm, the psalmist says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Friends, this is the best picture of what Jesus is talking about when he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. It's more than just a little hunger or thirst. As the psalmist gets at, and as Jesus is explaining, this is a craving, a true craving. Few of us know this kind of hunger and thirst that Jesus is talking about just on the physical level. And take that to the spiritual level, the soul crying out for what's necessary for survival. Just as when we are starving or hungry, we're crying out for the food and the water that is necessary to sustain our physical lives. That's the level of craving that Jesus has in mind. Let me tell you a story. In World War I, there was a joint operation between British, Australian, and New Zealand troops who were working together for the liberation of Palestine, the Promised Land. Um, it was under Turkish control. And as a troop drove north through the desert past Beersheba, they were chasing the Turkish forces, and they quickly outran their camels that were carrying their water. And they were in the blazing heat all day long. The chase logged on. And one of their leaders, um, named Major Gilbert, he said this, Our heads ached and our eyes became bloodshot and dim in the blinding glare. Our tongues began to swell. Our lips turned purplish black and burst. It's a bad situation. Well, they made it where they were going to Sharia Station, and there were deep cisterns with thousands of gallons of water that they couldn't drink just yet because they had to take the station, and they did. Then they had to begin with the wounded and get them drinks, even though there was just 20 feet of wall separating 
The people who needed the water from the thousands of gallons of water, they had to wait. And then, after the wounded were given drink, uh, those who were watching and keeping guard took their drinks. And then, one company at a time, they took their drinks. The whole thing took four hours. You can imagine the thirst and the yearning and the craving for that water that these soldiers were experiencing. That is a picture of thirst. And Major Gilbert didn't lose the lesson. He wrote, I believe that we all learned our first real Bible lesson on that march from Beersheba to Sharia Wells. If such were our thirst for God, for righteousness, for his will in our life, a consuming, all-embracing, preoccupying desire, how rich in the fruits of the Spirit would we be? That's the kind of craving that Jesus is talking about. Not just a small desire, not just the kind of take it or leave it sort of religion that many people have. It's not the kind of Christianity that shows up to church or prays or reads the Bible if there's not something else more pressing going on. This is the kind of craving that sees no other priority than to be with Jesus. That's the kind of craving. Not just any craving, but a craving for righteousness. And righteousness is a very religious sounding word. It's a very biblical word. It's a very crucial word. And I think as a church, we ought to have no concern whatsoever about sounding religious, but we ought to have a preeminent concern with being biblical. And so we must understand what righteousness is. And to understand what righteousness means in this beatitude, it's handy to work our way up from the first beatitude because each beatitude builds on the others that have gone before. And so when we look at what righteousness means here, we begin where Jesus did by saying that those who are truly blessed, those who know the saving grace of God, they're the poor in spirit. They recognize that they have no spiritual goodness to credit to their account. They have no righteousness of their own before a holy God. They are utterly and spiritually bankrupt. They have a mass of spiritual debt that they cannot pay to a God who will call it to account. And what do they do? They mourn. They mourn over their sinfulness that makes them an offense to a holy God. They mourn over their specific sins that have separated them from this God. They grieve that fact, and they are meek. They're lowly in heart, humbly coming to God, crying out for his grace alone because they know that's all they can possibly hope on. And what do these poor in, pe poor in spirit people need? and crave and desire more than anything else? Righteousness. Not their own, because they don't have any. No, they're craving the righteousness of another. The righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ. This is their only hope, their only salvation. And this is the first sense of righteousness that we see in this beatitude. Blessed are the, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. See, the Bible teaches that apart from Jesus Christ, there's no salvation. No salvation. A theological term that we could use here is justification. The prophet Habakkuk addressed God like this. It sticks out to us. He says, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. See, the telltale poison of every form of human religion is that people can offer their own acts of righteousness as a part of their salvation. But before the Holy One, 
We're all of us in the same boat, described by the Apostle Paul, who himself is quoting a psalmist when he says, none is righteous. No, not one. None is righteous. All are condemned to the just punishments of hell for their sins. Apart from Christ, there is no hope. And any idea of human righteousness is the most dangerous kind of fiction because it holds out a hope that we ourselves can supply something of our own salvation. And the Bible would say, no, none of that. And so Jesus does not say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for a little righteousness of God or a lot of Christ's righteousness. No, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the form of the word that he uses means all the righteousness. As much righteousness as there is in Christ to be had at all. That's how much we need because we've got nothing else to offer. So the Sermon on the Mount was preached to Jesus' disciples, okay, and to his disciples. It says that in verse 1. His disciples came to him, and he began to speak to them. And he begins with the Beatitudes as a description of those who are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. He's not telling them how they may become saved. He's telling them who are saved, what it means to live as his disciples, and that's why the kingdom entrance begins with those who are poor in spirit, because these are the ones who come to him for all that he is for them in the gospel, their only righteousness. And the person who comes to Christ alone for righteousness, who is poor in spirit, that's the person who's had the Holy Spirit at work in her heart to awaken her to her need for Christ. That's the first work of grace, and it's beautiful. And wherever that work happens, it leads to a deep, craving for the righteousness of Christ to cover the person, to cleanse them of their sins. It's the first spiritual impulse of the born-again person, just like the, the first physical impulse of a baby is to cry out for its mother's milk. That's the kind of craving we're seeing here. And that's exactly what justification is. It's the declaration by God upon the repentant believer that the sins of that person are washed away, that they are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, Justification means God's forgiven all of your sins and declared you to be righteous. The kind of righteousness that we crave because we cannot supply it for ourselves. And as we saw earlier, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And wherever a person is justified, wherever a person has experienced that kind of righteousness, there is more craving, more desire, more hunger and thirst. And that's a hunger and thirst for the righteousness of sanctification. Of sanctification. Or if you would have it in another word, Christ-likeness. See, we talk about sanctification as a church an awful lot, and that's for good reason. Because without sanctification... There is no Christian life. If a person is not being sanctified, they simply are not saved. One of the most clear messages in all the Bible is that those who are saved will look like their Savior. That's the main idea of the whole Sermon on the Mount. It's the Christian life in summary, in one word, Christ-likeness. Slow, sometimes imperceptible, but happening nonetheless. And so between the spiritual new birth and our physical death is this process of becoming more like Jesus. 
That's practical holiness. And that's what the author of Hebrews means when he writes, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And if you want to know what this holiness looks like, then look at the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gets into great detail about what holiness looks like in the lives of his people. He's expositing the law in such a way that they've never understood the depth to which a person must be born again in order to walk with Jesus as their Savior and as their Lord. And these Beatitudes are a kind of preface to this whole sermon. And the kind of righteousness that we see in the Sermon on the Mount is the kind of righteousness the Christian craves. Or if you would have it in another form, look at the fruit of the Spirit. That is the righteousness for which we hunger and thirst. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. In other words, doesn't that look like Jesus who embodies these things perfectly, who has the fullness of the Spirit? And wherever the Holy Spirit is in a person who's been born again, there will those fruits be growing. Because when we recognize God for who he is and we understand ourselves for who we are, we know that we have no righteousness of our own, but only sin. And by God's grace, we mourn over it. We come to him and he gives us what we ask for. He clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. And then he produces more in us. See, every Christian is a craving Christian, and righteousness is the Christian craving. Because when we're craving righteousness, we're craving Christ himself. We must become like him, because if we don't, we know we perish. If we have none of Jesus in our lives, we know that we have never known him. And if the big idea of this whole Sermon on the Mount is that those who are saved look like their Savior, then the big idea of this fourth beatitude is that those who are saved crave Christ-likeness. Those who are saved crave Christ-likeness. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. And Jesus says that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed. They're blessed. Just by way of reminder, blessedness in the Beatitudes means that a person is rich in the benefits of God's grace because blessed people are saved people and saved people have no stingy God but a God who pours out his graces through Jesus Christ in full measure, pressed down and running over. And what does he promise? What does he say about these blessed people who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness to be, become more like Jesus? He says, they shall be satisfied. They shall be satisfied. And not just a little. See, friends, the word translated shall be satisfied referred in the New Testament to limitless feeding until there was no more hunger. Think teenage boy and buffet. That's the kind of satisfaction that Jesus is offering. It's the kind of satisfaction you probably are still being affected by from Thanksgiving. It's that full measure, no holds barred. In other words, the satisfied person is fit to burst with all that they've been feeding on because there's no limit to what God will give to them as they come hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And this satisfaction that God promises, that God gives, has three important senses to it. It means three different things that are related but distinct. 
The first thing that Jesus means when he says that those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness will be satisfied is that they will be immediately satisfied. They will be immediately satisfied with salvation. Because when we come to Christ for the first time, hungering and thirsting for his righteousness to cover our sinfulness, he gives himself immediately. There's no probation period. There's no submit your resume and we'll get back to you in a little while. They won't forget to call you back because when God calls a person and that person craves and hungers and thirsts for righteousness, he says, you are forgiven. The righteousness of my son is yours now, full and free, once and for all. And that, my friends, is a good kind of satisfaction. See, when the Jews were arguing with Jesus because they wanted him to multiply more loaves and fishes for them to feed their physical hunger, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. There's no intermediate period. No, he gives the satisfaction. And when we come to Jesus trusting in his righteousness alone, his righteousness alone we have that satisfaction. We have salvation. We are saved by grace through faith. And we're satisfied not only immediately, because Folks, there's something of a paradox to this Christian life, and that is that when we're satisfied with Jesus, we end up wanting more Jesus. In the fourth beatitude, we're promised an ongoing satisfaction. An ongoing satisfaction. The reason that I crave In-N-Out Burger is because I've had In-N-Out Burger. I've been filled and satisfied with In-N-Out Burger, and I've been left wanting more. And God called me to Washington, where there's no In-N-Out Burger. <laughs> and because he is better, we came. But I remember, and I crave. And the same principle is true of righteousness. Only the righteousness that God gives is not geographically bound. He gives it in ongoing measure to those who yearn for it. And this is the sanctification that we talked about a few minutes ago. If you're a Christian and know something of holiness, let me ask you how much holiness is enough for you? How much of becoming like Jesus do you get to the point and you go, you know what, my wife is pretty lucky. I think we'll call it good. That would be foolish. And that's just not how the Christian life works. No, there's no measure of holiness that is enough for us because there's always more Jesus to be had. There's always more sin to bring before him to be crucified that we might glorify him all the more because the glory of God is the controlling impulse of the Christian heart. And so we hunger, we thirst, we crave for righteousness. And thanks to God, we have the satisfaction of seeing that forward movement as we walk with him. You see, this is the promise of that great benediction in 1 Thessalonians. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. He will do it. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will continue to be satisfied. You will continue to pursue it and God will do it. And finally, there will come a day when we're fully and eternally satisfied with righteousness in the presence of God. You see, my friends, at the cross, the power of sin was overcome. The debt of sin was paid. Its presence will go away one day when we see the Lord face to face. 
The Apostle John writes, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Do you look forward to that day? Do you long for that day when we will see him face to face? He goes on, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. See, friends, as we hunger and thirst for righteousness now, we become more and more like Jesus and are satisfied. And we do so in the hope and in the promise that one day we will have it in full measure. It begins now and it will last forever. And that's the situation. It's not bad. It's not bad. Those who are saved crave Christ's likeness and they will have it. So let me ask you a question. How's your hunger? How's your hunger? See, you may understand what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness, and you may know in your mind, I mean, we can intellectually grasp this whole concept of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, but unless you hunger and thirst for it, unless it is your craving, you will not be satisfied. God gives it without condition. He gives it with no strings attached. You don't need to bring anything but your appetite. So how is yours? Let's do a little taste testing, shall we? How can you know you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness? What kinds of things would be true of you if you actually craved Christ-likeness? You see, friends, the thing about hunger and thirst is that it actually drives us to do something. Nobody just sits down and is, is starving and sits here and goes, boy, I just hope that some food shows up. Maybe some Uber Eats. No, that's not how it works. You see, when a baby is hungry and thirsty, he cries until he gets what he wants. When we are craving for something, we make a plan and then we follow the plan and go get it. It's generally how it happens. With hungering and thirsting for righteousness, it moves us to pursue righteousness. And I want to avoid legalism here because it would be easy to send everybody home with a list of things to check off that don't actually produce Christ-likeness, that don't actually produce hunger and thirst. But we do have some helpful questions that, under the ministry of the Holy Spirit in each of our hearts, I trust will give us some sense of where we are and some sense of where we can go. And so here are five taste test questions just to help figure out where we are on this. First, do you renounce your own righteousness and embrace that Christ alone has the righteousness that you need? Do you renounce your own righteousness? In other words, friends, this is the poor in spirit. Are you poor in spirit? Because if you are, you will crave righteousness because that's all that you can hope for. Do you renounce your own righteousness or are you still trying to be good with God on your terms? And I would also ask, do you grieve Do you grieve over your sinfulness? Do you grieve over the sins that you daily struggle with? Do you grieve what separates you from a holy God? Do you grieve that even though Christ has saved you, yet you continue with this struggle? Do you confess those sins and forsake them and take active steps to be rid of them? Because those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness will not be able to long tolerate the sins that threaten to shipwreck their soul. If you say you hate your sin and love righteousness, but you're unwilling to actually cut that sin out of your life, you deceive yourself and you don't hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that may be an indication that you need to come to Christ and plead with him to save you and to give you the hunger and thirst for righteousness 
that is evidence of the work of grace. And you can trust that when you come asking that, he will do it. Third, I would ask, do you return to Christ and consider his righteousness regularly? Do you meditate on the gospel? Because friends, that's what's held out for us in the gospel, is God's righteousness for us. When we return to the one place we're satisfied, then we crave the satisfaction of the gospel all the more. And, that, and there's the paradox. We're ever craving and ever filled and ever craving and ever filled. Which raises another question. Is it your habit to go to the only places that your hunger and thirst for righteousness can be satisfied? He hasn't hidden it in a map with X marks the spot and I hope you find it. No. He tells you right where it's found and that's with him. It's with his people. It's with his righteous ones, which is what saints means. So, if only Christ can satisfy you and the Spirit sanctify you, do you go to prayer often? Because that's where you find that satisfaction. Are you a person of the Bible? Do you make use of the means of grace day by day? Or do you go for quite a while without being satisfied because you find out you're not that hungry? Well, the thing is, our habits reflect our hunger, physically and spiritually. And a negative final question would be this. Do you find yourself dulling your spiritual appetite by misusing God's gifts? Let me explain what I mean. We may be indulging in the good things that we ought to enjoy, but indulging in them in the wrong way or to the wrong degree. God is the Father of lights from whom every good and perfect gift comes. And the answer to misusing God's good gifts is not to throw away God's good gifts, it's to have a new relationship with them. And when we find that we're overindulging in the things that are good to the point where our spiritual appetite is going down, that's a great indication that we need to initiate a new relationship with those things. And they may be good things, really good things. And so we change our habits when we find that our spiritual senses are being diminished by the gluttonous use of God's gifts. This calls for wisdom. But I think that if you bring this to the Holy Spirit and you ask him for that wisdom, he will give it to you. And we will know how to orient our lives around the things that we enjoy in the proper degree so that we are enjoying God all the more because of the gifts he's given. It's the spirit of thankfulness. It's a good time to think about that. And if you find, like me, that your appetite for Christ is less than he is worthy of, friend, don't despair. See, the beautiful thing about Jesus is that when you come to him hungering and thirsting for righteousness, he says what? You will be satisfied. You will be satisfied. He's already laid the path in the first Beatitudes. And so if you know that your hunger is low, admit that to him. Mourn over it. Meekly come to him. And then do something about it. Adjust your habits. Grow your appetite. Because just like with our bodies, our spiritual appetites grow with the eating. So go eat. Feast on Jesus. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And what better time, I would ask, than Advent and Christmas to double down on our cravings. See, friends, this really is a Christmas beatitude. Because what did God do for a sinful world that could not get righteousness right for itself, that had no righteousness of its own, 
that was stuck in the dark night of sin and despair, he sent his righteous son, the light of the world, to take on our likeness so that we could have his likeness. As we sing each year in perhaps the greatest hymn ever written, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. When Jesus was growing in the virgin's womb, Mary gave one of the most beautiful songs ever written, a Christmas hymn if there ever was one, the Magnificat. Now, what did she say there? I wonder if Jesus didn't have some of the song in his mind when he gave the Beatitudes. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. Friends, Christmas came for our salvation so that we'd be fit to burst with the righteousness of our Savior and left wanting more, that we may be ever satisfied and then at his second advent be filled to the full eternally. Will you feast on him? Please pray with me. Jesus, Hail, we hail you, the heavenly Prince of Peace. We hail you, Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all you bring, risen with healing in your wings. And so we would pray, Adam's likeness, Lord, efface and stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Grant to us that spiritual appetite, that craving, hungering, and thirsting for your righteousness. And having been satisfied with you in our salvation, craving you all the more day by day as we taste and see that you are good. And thank you, our Father, for filling us with the goodness of your Son. Please enlarge our appetites and satisfy our souls all the way to glory. In Jesus we pray, amen.